If you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it The Miracle Maker. And we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so let's read from verse 30 through to the end of verse 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is once again a thrill to be gathered around your word. This is your word which you breathed out by your sovereignty and your power and your grace. This is your word to speak to us and direct us and encourage us and inform us about yourself. So Lord, would we hear your voice from this word today? Help us, Lord. Amen. You know, this morning, we come to one of the most well-known stories, I think, in the whole of the Bible. In most children's Bibles, in most children's story Bibles, this story is featured, and very often it is featured center stage. Most often, it is featured with a beautiful artistic impression alongside of it of what this scene would have been like. And so for those of you with children or those that grew up in a Christian home, you know the picture that I'm talking about. It's Jesus on a beautifully green Galilean hillside, on a beautifully idyllic day, surrounded by beautiful and happy and well-fed people. And you just see this picture in your mind of what this was like as portrayed in artistic impressions in children's storybooks. This is a well-known story preached to us from all four Gospels. And yet this is a story, I believe, that so often is totally misunderstood and misrepresented. I remember when I lived in the UK, 
One of my friends and fellow pastors, Dan Gavetta, used to go into schools and share the gospel in schools, and to do that would take assemblies. In the UK, you could take assemblies, believe it or not, and actually preach to kids, at least tell them Bible stories. And he used this as a text. And so he told all these kids, hundreds of kids, about what Jesus did with five loaves and two fish. And the headmaster comes up at the end and says, Well, that's right, children. We need to take into consideration the five loaves and the two fish, because what this teaches us is that we need to keep our world tidy. And that was the punchline. That, you know, in just the same way, they collected it all in baskets. That's what we need to do. So at lunchtime, at a break time, make sure you're putting your rubbish away into the bins. (laughs) True story. Dan came back to the office shaking his head going, that was awful, the most worst experience of my life. The headmistress just came on and told them something completely different that's not true. Also, very often, I think this is a story that is moralized. It's taught to us as a heartwarming story that teaches us the importance of sharing, the importance of being generous with what we have, and how God can multiply what we have, and so it's a heartwarming story about being generous. And yet that is not why this story is here. This story is here to show us Christ. Because this story isn't here primarily to show us why he did it or even how he did it, though our mind goes to that. What must it have been looking like? I would have loved to see it in the basket. That's not the point. The point that he's trying to make all the way through the story is who this is doing this, who he is, this Jesus of Nazareth, how incredible and powerful he is. Professor Michael Wilkins And his excellent article entitled Unique Discipleship to Unique Master helps us see this when he writes the following. Mark highlights the uniqueness of Jesus and in doing so, he also highlights the uniqueness of discipleship to this unique master. Listen. An important issue for understanding discipleship in Mark's gospel is to recognize that center stage always belongs to Jesus. Although other characters and the scenes in which they appear serve an invaluable role in highlighting certain facets of his person and ministry, first and foremost, Mark tells us a story about Jesus. Jesus is the one of whom this entire gospel is written. And discipleship then must be understood in light of his unique person and mission. That's outstanding. I cannot improve upon that quote. All the crowds, all the disciples, all the characters, all the way through this Gospel of Mark and all the scenes that they're in, they appear and serve an invaluable role. But it is Jesus who takes center stage throughout the entire Gospel. Mark is seeking to placard before our eyes Christ and him crucified. Jesus and his majesty and in his splendor and his authority. So when we look through this book, we have to primarily be looking for Jesus. And when you do that, you see a total other set of things in Jesus feeding the 5,000 than the importance of tidying away our stuff and being generous with people. Because that is not what it's here for. It's here to show us Christ. And it's here, I believe, to show us three things about Christ in particular. And here's the first. Number one. The wonderful compassion of the Saviour. The wonderful compassion that he's displayed throughout his life 
and death. See, this story begins with the return of the disciples. So look with me at verse 30. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now they're now returning from where they were sent out in verse 7, which we looked at last week. In verse 7 of chapter 6, it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He's told them that he's going to be sending them out in chapter 3. In chapter 6, he does send them out, and it appears it goes great. In verse 12, it says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with all many who were sick and healed them. I would have loved to have been there when they came back. In verse 30, I would have loved to have been there when they returned and they say, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. At which point he's saying, I think I probably will. You're not going to believe this. But we did as you told us to do, and we started to share with them about you. And we started to pray for people that were sick, and they got healed. And we started to see people that had demons in them, and we cast them out in your name, and they came out. And we started to proclaim to them the gospel that you've taught us, and people got saved. Jesus, it's been incredible. Well, in verse 30, that's what's happening. They're coming back to the Saviour. And they're telling him all that has happened. And they are without doubt exhilarated by all that has taken place. But they are also without doubt exhausted by what has taken place. And it would appear, from verse 31 onwards, that the Saviour is attentive to the fact that they are exhausted. He gets it. Jesus himself, according to the Gospel of John about this story, it says that he was preaching for many days in the, in the towns in Galilee. He also is tired. He's been sharing the Gospel all around Galilee. He's been healing many people. He's been casting out many demons. Jesus knows what it is to be tired. He himself is tired. And so he knows the disciples too are tired. So in verse 31, he says to them, Come away then by yourselves to a desolate place, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. This is, inc- this is interesting, because prior to this moment, it's only been Jesus who's been popular. It's only been Jesus who the crowds have been coming around. But it would appear that now as the disciples step up and share Christ, and heal people and rebuke demons, they're becoming popular too. So all these people are still coming to them, now not only to Jesus, but the disciples, to hear from them, to talk to them, to see them, to ideally be healed by them. So Jesus seeks to take them away by boat to a desolate place for the purpose of rest. J.C. Ryle says about this scene, he says, These words are full of tender consideration, and they are. His boys have come back. They're back in town. They're tired. He gets it. So, hey, listen, come with me. Let's get in the boat. Let's go over the other side. Let's take some time out. Let's take some rest. And yet, rest didn't appear to be on the equation after all. Jesus is so popular by now. The disciples are very popular by now. So this is what happens next in verse 33. It says, Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. <laughs> it's almost a humorous scene. 
Jesus recognizes they're tired. He himself is tired, and so he instructs them, let's get in the boat. I will take you personally in the boat to the other side to a desolate place. However, it would appear that many hundreds of people see the boat leaving. They recognize the sails. They take a good look, and they're like, whoa, that's Jesus. That's his disciples. Let's go. And so hundreds of people start running around the lake as the boat goes over. And every time they get to a town, which there'll be lots of Galilean villages and towns along the, along the lake, every time they get there, they're like, you've got to come. Jesus is in this boat, and we think we know where he's going. You've got to come. And so there's just this mob by the end that are all running. So while this boat makes the four-mile trip over the lake, people are running around the lake to the point where by the time Jesus gets there, 5,000 men which is about 8,000 people most likely, plus women and children, are sitting, waiting for him, welcome, as he gets off the boat. I mean, in a mischievous way, I would have liked to have been in the boat at this point because, because we're getting used to the disciples by now, right? And you can just imagine the level of conversation in the boat. As Jesus brings them in, in the boat, the first thing the disciples see is, Thousands of people. Here's what they would have been saying to Jesus at this moment. Jesus, reverse. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I don't want to see or speak to another person. Let's go back. Let's reverse the sail somehow. Let's just you know, wave at them and then travel on. Do something else. And yet that wasn't on Jesus' agenda. Because here's what happens. As that boat comes in in verse 34... It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Notice Mark informs us here, first and foremost, not of something that Jesus is going to do, not of an action, but of a heart as he sees the multitude. Before anything else, Mark wants us to understand not something that Jesus does, but something that he feels. And as he gets off that boat, also tired and exhausted from all that has already taken place, what he feels is compassion. He sees all these people and he has compassion on them. Because in their thousands, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. They're helpless. They can't feed themselves. So no doubt with the disciples claiming reverse in ringing in Jesus' ear, he gets out and moves forward and looks at them with great compassion. And when you see this, when you see this compassion for what it is, I, I think you can't help but be captivated by it. You see, we see it at the cross, and we saw it a few weeks ago. That moment where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he sees Mary and John, and he says, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. Profound compassion. As he hangs in pain and distress, he's still bothered about his family. And we see it throughout Jesus' life as well. Moments where he feels for people. Moments when he views people like sheep without a shepherd. Moments when he comes into contact with ones and twos and great crowds. 
And what he feels is compassion. I just think for me that is so provoking. Because it makes me consider in my life when I see crowds or ones and twos, what do I feel? See, it's so easy, I think, when we're tired to look on at crowds and people who do not know the Lord and actually, if we're honest, on some occasions feel a degree of irritation. I mean, Jesus, I know I'm called to go get them. I know I'm called to go tell them, but they're not interested in you and I'm tired. I've got a lot going on in my life. I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good dad. I've got a job. I do work, you know, and you want me to go and speak to all these people. I'm tired. Let somebody else do it. Somebody else has got loads of time. Because I'm tired. It's also so easy, I think, to look on people with sometimes a degree of self-righteousness. I mean, they're not interested in Jesus. Why on earth are they making the decisions that they make? Why are they doing what they do? Wouldn't be what I would do. It's even possible, I think, to look on at people sometimes, whether it be in a workplace or college or even in our families, with a degree of disdain. You stand for the very opposite thing that I stand for. Everything that I'm pro as I stand on this word, you stand for the exact opposite. So just leave me alone. I don't want you near me. I don't want you near my family. You reject the Christ that I love, so just leave me alone. And you're not so with Jesus. He's tired. He's also exhausted. He gets out the boat and looks at a crowd that in actual reality don't actually want to follow him. They just want to see him for what they perceive he can do for them. I.e. heal them, entertain them, help them. And yet Jesus doesn't get back in the boat and run off. He, he looks at them and feels for them and has compassion on them. Because he sees them for who they really are. Behind the masks and behind the faces, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. People that do need him and don't even realize how much they need him. And so here's what happened next. Verse 34b, it says, And he began to teach them many things. Full of compassion, full of love for this crowd, he begins to teach them, teaches them many things. In broad terms, here's what that will have been. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus' primary message was this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. That was Jesus' primary text all the time. He wanted them to realize, I'm here. I've come for you. I've come on the greatest rescue mission ever told for you, so repent and believe in me. Be forgiven of your sin. Be redeemed. Be justified. Know that heaven is your home. Come to me. And so full of compassion, Jesus teaches them. What wonderful compassion this is, isn't it? This ain't no story about keeping the world tidy. It's about Jesus. And there we see him in the very first scene, full of compassion, as he gets off that boat and engages with a crowd. And he loves them. He's bothered about them. He's filled with compassion. 
That's not all we see in this story. Number two, we also see the all-sufficiency of the Saviour. Not only the wonderful compassion of the Saviour, but the all-sufficiency of the Saviour. You know, one writer says this about the miracle that we're going to see in just a few moments' time. He says, This miracle is something so remarkable that it would be talked about and sung about for centuries to come. That's what it is. This is a miracle that would be talked about and sung about for centuries to come. And right now the scene begins to set for it. See, Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, preaches all day to this crowd. He spends time teaching them many things about why he has come and who he is. And after a day of teaching, darkness begins to approach. And because they are in a desolate place, without any access to food, a low-grade crisis begins to develop. See, it would appear that as these guys have done the run-round of the lake, no one's thought about food. This was a spontaneous gathering. They didn't know how long they were going to be there. They didn't know for sure exactly where he was going to land. So they're just running. That's all they're doing. They're just running after him because they want to see him. They want to meet him. They want to encounter Jesus Christ. And so what we have here are thousands of people beginning to get hungry a long way from home. They're in a desolate place and they're hungry. And so the disciples in concern provide Jesus with their assessment and recommendation of what he may want to do next. This is the disciples trying to encourage and make recommendations to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, just in case he hasn't realised. This is what happens in verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus is probably preaching and teaching at this point, okay? He's probably sharing the gospel with them. And all that is actually happening behind the scenes is the disciples are saying, Hey, come here a minute. Yeah, come on over. Yeah, Jesus, you may not be aware, but it's getting quite late. So could you sort of round things off a little bit? Um, Because we're all getting a bit tired. And there's a group of guys here, you know, like 8,000 of them, that are quite hungry. And they're a long way from home. So if you wouldn't mind, probably best to tell them away. I mean, talk about Captain Obvious. This is a Captain Obvious moment. Yes, Jesus knows it's getting late. And Jesus knows they are getting hungry. And yet what they didn't know, and what I think they were totally unprepared for, is what Jesus says to them in response. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) Your response is exactly their response in this moment. You're like, say what? Jesus, there's 8,000 of them here. Give them something to eat. Okay, guys, have a whip round. Anybody got a lunchbox? You know, they are totally like, what are you on about? And their tone is indeed one of being dumbfounded, and they are, in all honesty, as you read this, you must understand the tone, not just the content. They are irritated with the Saviour. They're tired. They've just spent days serving the Saviour. They're even in the boat because he said they're going to a desolate place because they're tired and they need rest. Now they've just sat and listened to another day of him speaking. They come to him out the good of their heart to let him know it's getting late, Jesus. Round it up. They need to go home. And he says to them, no, I've got a better idea. You give them something to eat. 
Well, their response then is one of irritation. Look at the rest of verse 37. It says, And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So you have to understand the tone of that is sarcastic and disrespectful. They're irritated with the Lord here. They're irritated with what they're asking him to do. 200 denarii is eight months' wages for normal laborer. It's 200 days of laboring wage. And these disciples are totally broke. Chapter 6, verse 8, he charges them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. No bag, because the bag was used for, for, really used for begging. They were broke. They're a bunch of kids that have no money. They used to fish for a living. They don't have eight months' wages on them. So their premise to the Savior is exactly that. Oh, let's just check the bank account. I'll find eight months' wages and go buy them bread. And yet the Saviour continues to be very gracious with them, very patient with them. He says this to them in verse 38, And he said to them, So how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. He sends them on a recce. Okay, so yeah, guys, settle down. I know you haven't got eight months' wages. So go ask the crowd. Get a bit of crowd participation. Go ask them what they've got. Okay, we'll go around. Oh, no one's got anything, but this kid has got five little loaves, sugar barley loaves, and two sardines. So, yeah, we're not going to quite cover it, Jesus, but thanks for checking in. 8,000 people are not going to manage with five loaves and two fish. See, the whole premise at this point, from their perspective, is Jesus, this is impossible. You've asked us to do something that is impossible. We haven't got eight months' wages. We've done a recce of the crowd. Five loaves, two fish. We're never going to feed all these crowd with just this in our hands. It is impossible. And therein lies the point of the miracle. Because that's exactly where Jesus wanted to get them to. Jesus wants them to understand that in and of itself, it was impossible. Because what he is seeking to do here is he is divinely setting up, by divine design, a training opportunity of his disciples. Even now, he continues to train them for the mission ahead. And he wants them to understand that in the midst of their genuine inadequacy, his genuine all-sufficiency will always be enough for them. That when he calls them to do something, his all-sufficiency will provide for them. He will aid them. So yes, in and of itself, it's impossible. But with him, all things are possible. When he calls you to do something, you'll get it done. See, the, the issue here was not the calculations that the disciples were using. It wasn't wrong of them to go, Jesus, if we're going to go buy enough bread and fish and stuff for these guys, it's going to be eight months' wages. We haven't got that. That was okay. It wasn't wrong for them to go around the crowd and then say, look, this is all we've got. Just five pieces of bread and two fish, it's all we've got. The problem wasn't in their calculations. The problem was that in their calculations, they had made no provision nor allowance for the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And that is an epic mistake. This is Jesus. 
The one they've walked with primarily for nearly two years now as you do the time date on this stuff. They've seen his authority over Satan. They've seen his authority over sin. They've seen his authority over demons and sickness and death. They've even seen his authority over nature. He's the one that can sit up in a boat and go, Be still! And the storm stops. And yet as they look out in the crowd, having been commissioned by him to feed them, they don't once think, I wonder if he could help us. They just go within. I think we can't do it. We can't do it. It's just impossible. What you want us to do, we can't do. Do you see the point? Jesus, by divine design, sets up a divine teaching opportunity for them to help them see that when he calls them to something, it is impossible for them. But with him, it's always possible. He will always provide. John Calvin says of this scene so wonderfully, he says, So now, having discharged their temporary commission, they went back to school to make greater advances in learning. Isn't that wonderful? So he's commissioned them. They've gone. They've started to share the gospel with people. They've been healing people. Demons have been coming out of people. They come back. They're already lacking faith. We can't do this. We can't feed them. But all the time, what he's actually doing is taking them back to school because they're not ready for the commission yet. And he's teaching them all the way through. I've got you. When I call you to something, I've got you. And what a lesson this was. Look at verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups, by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. I would have loved to have been there. What a day. What a day. It begins, you're tired. Jesus says, hey, let's get in the boat, let's go get some rest. When you get there, there's eight thousand people there. Jesus says, hey, can you feed them? No, we can't feed them. But then he does feed them. And each time they come back with their basket saying, hey, is there any more? Because there's still like another, there's still another 3,000 over here. Every time they're giving them more bread and they go and take it. What a day. This would be a day that these disciples would never forget. And what a lesson. This would be a lesson that these disciples would draw on from the rest of their lives. As they realize when Jesus calls you to something, he will provide all you need for that something. What a day and what a lesson. My friends, this is a day and a lesson that we need to learn from too, isn't it? See, it can be so easy, I think, in mission and the fact that we're called to go and make disciples of all nations to very quickly put that in the too hard box, the impossible box. I just can't do it. We know we're called to it. And on Sunday it sounds great. And then we see our colleagues on Monday morning and it doesn't sound so great anymore. You think, I don't know how I'm going to do this. They're never going to come in. They're never even going to hear me out. There's just no way. We all have that one family member in our houses 
or certainly in our wider family, that we just think there's no way they are ever going to become a Christian. It's just not going to happen. It's too hard. We all have different things in the mission that Jesus has called us to that we can so easily go, it's just too hard. I'm not going to be able to do it. I've got too much on. I've only got five loaves and two fish. I'm not going to be able to manage it. And each and every time we totally miss the point. In our humanity, we will never be able to manage it because it is hard. But with Jesus, anything's possible. And we do the same in our lives, don't we? We all have high and holy callings on our lives. And yet it's all too easy to put things in the too hard basket. So what God's called me to in my single years, to understand that this is a gift given by him to redeem the time for his glory. But Lord, this is just too hard. It's just too hard. In the married years, husbands laying their lives down to serve their wives. Wives seeking to serve and help their husbands as together they go forward in unity for the glory of God. But as we see the difference in roles, we go, whoa, this is just too hard. This is just too difficult. You get up in the morning and you start parenting children and you, you look at them and for the first five minutes, it's great. And then minute six, you just think, this is just too hard. And that's before the other four have even gone out of bed. You just think, it's just too hard. The things we're called to serve in in the local church, the money that we're called to give for the Lord Jesus Christ, the mission that we're called to brandish and go on for his glory. It's just too hard. I live in Sydney, one of the most expensive places in the world. It's just, this is just too hard. I've, I've got so much on. One of our greatest failings as Christians, I believe, is we put far too much in the impossible too hard bracket. Rather than realizing, as disciples, we are meant to realize, this is impossible by myself. But when we go and we take our basket to Jesus and say, hey, listen, what you've called me to, I can't do. Would you help me? What you find is Jesus is there with his five loaves and two fish, and saying, hey, here you go. This is for you. I'm the provider. I'm the power. I'm the strength. I'm the one that's got you. My friends, this story is here in part to teach us that, to help us see Jesus is all-sufficient. And in the midst of our inadequacy, he is totally adequate. In the midst of the things that we put in the too hard basket, Jesus must look on and shake his head and go, too hard? What, for me? Come to me and I will give you power. Come to me, I will give you the bread. It's all about me. In this text, we see the wonderful compassion of Jesus. We also see the all-sufficiency of Jesus. And then we see number three, the profound mission of of the Saviour. The profound mission of Jesus. See, this mission has been wonderfully alluded to, although not necessarily immediately obvious, all the way through the story. And one set of individuals that did not miss this subtlety was the crowd. 
See, hundreds of years earlier from this moment, as Israel, God's chosen people, wandered in the wilderness, one of the things that happened is that God, by his power and his grace, miraculously provided bread for them each and every day of their lives. Manna from heaven. Each and every day, his people got up in the morning and there was bread on the ground waiting for them, just the right amount that they would need for that day. And many years on then, after that event happened and they went into the promised land and so forth, in later years it was prophesied to Israel, and in the Old Testament was prophesied, that one would come, and he would come as a king, as a saviour, and as a messiah, And he would do likewise to what God we'd already seen God do in the wilderness. He would provide bread from heaven. He would be the bread of life and would provide bread for his people, their daily bread that would give them all that they need. He would be the king and the Messiah and the saviour and he would issue bread to all. Well, it would appear then, according to the account in John, that that is exactly what is happening here. Because the crowd, as they see Jesus dividing up this bread and the fish, here's their response. In the Gospel of John, here's their response as they see Jesus feeding the thousands. Their premise is this. Surely this is him. Surely this is the one we've been waiting for. The one who is prophesied of old. Surely this is the King and the Messiah and the Savior. Look, he's the bread of life. He's giving out. He's feeding the masses. Surely this is the one who is prophesied of, of old. In the account in John, it says that this is what happened. It says, perceiving this, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know, that bit in John can always be real confusing because you think, why did he do that? Because he is the king, right? Yeah. He is the saviour. He is the Messiah, true? Yes, the crowd were right. They were right. This is him. This is the one who has been prophesied of of old. So why is he now running into the hillside? Well, because they were right. This is him. This is the bread of life. But they were also profoundly wrong. He had not come to be their king in the way they thought he had come. So the Galilean villages around the lake were the headquarters for the Zealot movement. And the Zealot movement was really a sect in in Jewish tradition that understood, or at least thought they understood, that the prophecies of old talked about a king who would ultimately come in power and release them from their bondage. So they figured what that means is we need a king that will release us from Roman oppression and Roman opposition. So they're coming to take Jesus in this moment to make him king. You can take on Caesar. You can release us from all this Roman bondage. You can come and set us free. We can be God's people again. And so Jesus withdraws. Why? Not because he isn't the king. He is. He withdraws because he hasn't come to take on Roman occupation and Roman oppression. He's come to take on something far more profound. He's come as their king. He's come as their saviour to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how he was going to be the bread of life. 
He was going to give them life by dying in their place. You know, that mission, that is profound. The crowd didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And yet, ironically, they were right. Surely this is him. This is him. The king has come. And so what you see throughout this story are allusions to Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament understanding. So verse 34, when we read, Jesus had compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd, that's Psalm 23. The promise of a shepherd king to come. One who will be with his people and oversee them. They're coming and going. And who will always be with them. That's why Jesus says that he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He's saying, I'm the shepherd. We also see it in verse 39 when it says, Jesus made them sit down in green pastures. Mark isn't just telling us that, oh, by the way, it was green. Yeah, good. It'd be good for the, it'd be good for the Bible storybooks when the kids are older. You know, you can put colour it in green. He's telling us that because he wants us to understand this is Psalm 23. When it says the shepherd king will come and he will make his people lie down in green pastures. So Jesus right here says, hey, you want to eat? Sit down. I'll feed you. And he also alludes all the way through this to how he is himself the bread of life. The one whose body would be broken for us. Whose body would literally be torn apart as he prophesied and points us to to the Lord's Supper. He's pointing it to the people here as well. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm going to be broken for you. And he's the bread of life that will give food that ultimately satisfies That's why there's so much left over in the end in all these baskets. It's not just so we go, oh, that's sweet. Because he wants us to understand the bread that he gives us will be overflowing. You will not only eat to your fill, but there will be basket after basket after basket left. Because there's plenty more where that came from. This mission then is profound, isn't it? And this story, when you understand what's going on, is profound. This story then, my friends, is not here to teach us to keep the world tidy. That just doesn't quite cut it. This story is not here to warm our hearts as to the value and importance of sharing. Nice. Don't teach that in Sunday school from this story. That's not what it's about. This story is here to show us Christ, to show us him. How incredible he is in his compassion, in his mission, and in his all-sufficiency. My friends, if you're here today then and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I want to encourage you, don't spend another moment of your life then outside of the saving provision that he has to offer. He came for you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And he came all the time exclaiming, I've come to give you life. He came to die in your place so that you might have life and that in abundance. He came to die on the cross as your substitute so that if you put your faith in him as your Lord and Saviour, you will be reconciled to the one who made you and you will have the life that he always caused you to have. Not only now, but far more importantly in the age to come. Don't spend another moment of your life then outside of his saving provision, outside of his saving pastures. 
outside of his shepherd kingship. But if you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, he is your king, then live in the good of it, my friends. Because this is the way he is towards you. He came on the profoundest mission of all time for you. And in doing so, he had compassion on you. And now, as he calls you to great things for him, he will be your all-sufficiency. So run to him. He is our only hope. And he is all we need. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this story, for the way it opens up our eyes once again to Jesus. And Lord, you should and must always take centre stage in our hearts. This book is all about you. And it's as we see you placarded before our eyes that we get to our knees in humble amazement that this is who you are. A saviour filled with wonderful compassion. A compassion that provokes us to look at others that way. A saviour who is all sufficient in his power. One who we can run to in our inadequacy and find power and grace in you. And you are a saviour who came on the profoundest mission ever told. And that's why you will always be, you will always be our song from age to age. Because you're worthy of it all, Lord. You are our king. You are our shepherd. You are our saviour. So as we read this story, with all eyes and all gaze and all glory, go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.